0: to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Hi, this is Nick Freitas and welcome back to Making the Argument. Before we get started today, real quick request, like and subscribe. This helps us get this message out to a lot of people and we need your help to do that. So please take a quick minute, like and subscribe. Today, we're going to be taking questions from the audience. So a couple days ago, went on Facebook and I said, look, we want to hear from our viewers. We've got thousands of people that are now listening to this podcast, watching our YouTube channel I want to get your feedback on what are some of the questions that you want us to address? What are some of the arguments that you want to hear for things that that you have concerns with? And we got a ton of questions in a very short period of time. and we, you know, went back on and allowed people to kind of rank which questions that they agreed they wanted us to get wanted me to get priority to. And so here's the first thing I'm going to tell you. We're gonna do this again because we had we had so many questions that there's no way, We could do this all in one podcast unless you want to listen to this for the next three hours. So we're going to try to keep the podcast within a reasonable amount of time. If we don't get to your question, do not be dismayed because I promise you, we will do this again. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Um, So let's go ahead and go through the questions. A couple things I just want to say right off the bat. We had questions come from all across the political spectrum, conservatives, libertarians, uh, progressives, you know, all of them came in and asked questions. I'm going to try to, I'm going to, I really want to get to some of the questions that came in from progressives because I appreciate the fact that they're willing to watch. They're willing to uh, ask a question and willing to listen to an answer. So I'm going to, I'm going to do my due diligence and try to give everyone like a good, comprehensive, honest answer, but I am going to try to do it quickly so we can get through as many as possible. All right. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. So first question we got from, and, and the other thing too, if I, mispronounce your name. I just apologize up front, right? But, uh, Al-Suin asked, why are the Republic, why are the Republicans attempting to block any attempt to investigate the events of January 6th? Okay. So I'm assuming this is in reference to, uh, the house, uh, basically wants to hold an investigation on January 6th and, you know, gosh, why would any Republican be against this? So, um, and I, and I know you're coming at this from a perspective, uh, you know, cause I, I read, some of the other comments and whatnot on on what you think of this, and so I'm I'm going to try to give you, you know, uh, the reason why a lot of conservatives are skeptical of this. I don't think there's a whole lot of skepticism for investigating um, January 6th with respect to things like. You know, why did this happen? With with regards to the role of the Capitol Police, with respect to Capitol security, I mean, there's legitimate questions there. Uh, ben Shapiro has actually talked about this, and and I and again, regardless of what you think about Ben Shapiro, I actually think he gave a good overview on when is it appropriate for Congress to launch an investigation. So there's some things Congress does investigations for which to me look like you know third world show trials, and I think they're ridiculous. And why is Congress even doing this? So what are the areas where Congress should hold investigations? Well, when there's some sort of oversight component, which is to say that the Congress is asserting its authority because it believes that a different branch of government has perhaps you know, gone beyond its, its constitutional limitations or has, is doing something that is reserved only for the legislature. Another component is to actually conduct research or investigate something in order to determine what sort of appropriate uh, legislation might be necessary to correct problems. So a good example of this was something like the 9-11 Commission. Now, when you saw the 9-11 Commission go forward, it it was really focused on, okay, why did this happen? What were the breaks in the system? How do we improve upon it? And for the most part, whether you agree with all all the findings of the Commission or not, I think most people had a, a reasonable amount of faith that this was something where it was bipartisan and people were coming together because we really wanted to identify particular problems, not necessarily engage in like an overt politicized blame game. I don't think you see that same thing with the, the January 6th investigation that they're launching. And some of that has to do with the way that it's set up. And some of it has to do with kind of the, um, the nature of the investigation and what they're researching. So some of this has to do with what sort of rhetoric led to certain behavior. And Republicans are coming back and we're looking at this going, wait a second, you had riots all over the country to include attacks on federal buildings, on government buildings. There was no call for an investigation, no particular interest in an investigation from, from House Democrats. But January 6th, now there is an interest and there's there's a very, very limited interest on what it is that they want to investigate. And so for someone like me, I am interested in what was the breakdown in security protocols and procedures with respect to the Capitol Police. I'm, I'm interested in that. Not because I want to throw rocks at Capitol Police. I just want to know what exactly happened and why this took place the way it did. That's not to say that I don't also want to understand the, the motivations of various groups involved. But again, for all of us to have that this is going to be a good faith investigation. There needs to be genuine bipartisanship and it can't be narrowed or or tailored in such a way to where it looks like that you're trying to arrive at a foregone conclusion. And so that is where I think a lot of Republicans, that's where I have issues with it, is that this feels more like a political uh, witch hunt than it does a, a genuine analysis of what happened on January 6th. And then again, it begs the question that if we're gonna if we're gonna analyze January 6th based off of this criteria, well then we could look at a lot of other criteria that took place in the country over the last year that might also warrant similar investigations. Are you willing to do that, or is this just something where we're gonna play political gotcha games? So it I, I don't think it's the Republicans don't see any value in in understanding more about what happened with respects to tactics, techniques, and procedures uh, on the Capitol and and things like that. But it, it there's just there 's just not a lot of trust that this is going to be anything more than political theater um, you know potentially ahead of the midterms, and how long can this be drug out right so that that's i mean is that 's the best answer I can give you with respect to what my view is on it and where I think a lot of conservatives view this is that it it seems very selective, and that 's not to say that it 's not important or there there aren 't legitimate reasons to investigate it. I think there are um, but it 's about doing it in a way that really is open, transparent, and about getting to the truth of things not having foregone conclusions and then automatically, you know, trying to prove those foregone conclusions. Right. It's let, let's come up with with open, honest guidelines. Let's come up with a panel of people that both sides can trust. And let's sit and have an open and honest debate about it. And, you know, th- this is the sort of thing where th- this very quickly becomes pandering to the camera for, for either, both sides of the aisle. It becomes pandering to the camera. And, and there are some serious questions that we should be asking about, not only January 6th, but a lot of other events that took place last year. <clears throat> but again, we just have to do it in a way that, that both sides can trust. And unfortunately, there's a lot of motivation to politicize every single aspect of this. And I don't think that's very helpful. And, and that's why you see Republicans opposing it. Um, I, I don't think it's just because they don't care what happened or they don't, they don't care about certain failures and procedures or, or whatnot. Um, so I hope that answers your question. All right. Uh, Question from Bill. So Bill said, is it a politician's duty to represent and address the needs of their constituents or their party? This is interesting. And and I get this question too. And a lot of times when I get this question from the right, I'll get asked questions like, you know, uh, why don't politicians listen to we the people, right? Or or why don't they do what their constituents want? Here's what I would tell you. There are certain circumstances where you will see a politician that says one thing and does something completely different, right? I think that is a a very, very legitimate critique of people in elected office. If they are telling you one thing when they're running for office and then they go to Richmond or Washington, D.C. or wherever they serve and they do something completely different, then that requires an explanation on behalf of the elected official, right? They need to go back to their constituents and explain why they told their constituents one thing and did something else. But if it's this broad question of, well, are you going to listen to the needs of your constituents or your party? Well, in, in some ways, what I don't quite understand about this question is, is that, well, of, of course, you should be doing what you told your constituents you were going to do. Now, inevitably, because nobody wins with 100% of the vote. So inevitably, some constituents are not going to like what you do. And inevitably, some of the th- some, if not a lot of the things that you do may correspond with the party platform that you run under, All right, That's that's not nefarious. Um, what's nefarious is when someone does one thing and, and or says one thing and does something completely different. But the role of a representative is not to simply take a poll every time that we vote. Again, in the General Assembly, we see 2,500 bills and we'll, we'll vote on, you know, gosh, well over a thousand. Each individual member will probably vote on over a thousand bills within a 60-day session, you know, right? In, in Congress, you 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 know, have similar numbers with respect to their terms and their rules and, and their processes. But so this idea that you should, you know, take an opinion poll every time you vote doesn't make a lot of sense. The whole concept of representative government is I tell you what I believe. I tell you what I plan to do. I answer your questions honestly about how I plan to vote on certain issues. And then when I get elected, I go and I do those things. And if I do then I think it's fair to say that I have effectively carried out my responsibilities as a representative based off of what I told my constituents. Because it, it, it is impossible to represent the will of every single one of your constituents with every vote you take. That, that's, that's impossible to do because we have different opinions on how things should be done. We might have a general agreement on in states, but we generally have a lot of disagreement with processes. So as, as long as I'm honest with you about what I believe, and then I go vote appropriately or I legislate appropriately, um, well, the fact that I won the election based off of what I said I was going to do, and then I went and did those things, I think is a pretty good indication that I'm, I'm doing what my constituents, or at least the majority of my constituents wanted me to do. Now, if you don't like that, well, then again, when, when I'm up for re-election or anybody else is up for re-election... You run a different candidate that runs on a different platform. And if they win, well, now the constituents have spoken and they've, they've indicated that they want to go into a different direction. But I, but I don't think, <clears throat> I, I think it's a little bit, it, the question I think is a little bit problematic. Do you do the needs of your constituents or your party? Well, again, you, you shouldn't be doing something just because your party wants it. But if the thing you want to do that a majority of your constituents voted for you to do corresponds with what your party statement is, then it's not an either or proposition. It's not go against my consti- go with my constituents or go with my party. And so I, I think that's how we, elections are essentially the way that we determine whether or not we think an elected representative is effectively representing a majority of the will of their constituents. Now, again, it would be nice. If, you know, we could take votes where everybody agreed, but as long as constituents disagree about what they want done, well, then inevitably you're going to be put in a position where you're going to vote in certain ways that some constituents like and some constituents don't like, but you're being honest to your position as a representative provided that what you told your constituents you believe in you would do corresponds with what you actually do when you get elected. So I hope that answers your question, Bill. All right. um, Melissa, why is Virginia dead last in teacher pay? And why are we still using outdated reading programs that have been proven over and over to fail students? We are losing amazing teachers to other states because they can easily double their salary and have the same cost of living. So this is an interesting question, Melissa. And um, I, I, if I remember correctly, I believe you, you are a teacher. But uh, let me I actually, I actually refresh my own information on the data in Virginia because I, I didn't think we were dead last and I wanted to just confirm that that was not the case. And so here's, here's what I found. Um, so according to a report by Business Insider, which was done this year, Virginia ranked 34th in the country at an average salary of $53,933. All right? But then I went and I looked at the NEA, the National Education Association, and, and the NEA, the Virginia Education Association, these are not conservative groups. right? They're, by no stretch of the imagination are they conservative groups. And I looked at their studies, and they said, that Virginia is ranked 17th in the country at a starting pay of $42,069 and 26th in the national average at a starting pay of $57,665. So again, there's some discrepancy between what Business Insider is saying and what the National Education Association is saying. I mean, free to pick which one. They, they probably, maybe they had a difference in the way that they tracked compensation. Um, <clears throat> but overall, the the average salary in Virginia for a teacher $57,665, that places is at 26th in the country. Um, we tend to be one of the higher paying ones in the South. Now, obviously within Virginia, you have a significantly you know, different living, um, cost of living between Northern Virginia, Richmond, Virginia Beach, and like Southwest Virginia, Southside Virginia, and parts of Central and the Valley. And so that, that explains some of the teacher and discrepancy. Um, but as far as a teacher can go somewhere else and easily double their salary and have the same cost of living, I, I would really like to see the, the data behind that because what I what I saw was is that the the highest pay that a teacher receives is actually in New York, and the average salary salary there is eighty seven thousand five hundred forty three dollars. But a lot of that is skewed because of New York City, and obviously cost of living around New York City, Long Island is is generally a lot higher than most places in Virginia. That's, that's uh, probably, it's probably a little bit more comparable to areas in Northern Virginia, um, but obviously you get into Central, South, Southwest, it, it's very different. So again, we're, we're not dead last by any of the figures that I could see. <clears throat> um, now with respect to the question, now again, does, does that mean we shouldn't do more? Um, no, I don't think it means that at all, but here's, here's the other problem that I would say that we have with assessing teacher pay. Teachers within the public schools are essentially being paid in accordance with a government-run monopoly. Um, And the difference there is that a government-run monopoly doesn't respond to supply and demand the way that everywhere else in the marketplace does. And so teachers are largely compensated not based off of their effectiveness or how hard they work. They're compensated based off of seniority. And most places across the country also have pretty strict rules with respect to um, last in, first out. So even if you're a really good teacher, if there has to be cuts or they cut a teacher, then it's going to be the, the, the teacher that's lowest on the pole with seniority. It's, it's not based off of you know, how good a job they're, they're necessarily doing. And one of the ways it's really, really difficult in order to, you, you'll see t- sometimes they'll talk about performance pay for teachers. And a lot of times teachers push back, about, uh, push back on this and they actually have a very good reason for it. It's because the way that the government assesses performance is, I, I think, flawed in a lot of ways. They, they rely heavily on standardized testing. And so let's say you have two teachers and one teacher, let's say the, the, the score that they have to hit on their standardized testing is 70. We'll just use that as an example. And one teacher has a classroom full of students that are already there. They're already scoring 70 or above. And another teacher has a classroom full of students that are at 30. Well, if we don't judge that correctly, then a teacher with a bunch of students at 30, they get all of their students up to 67, right? It looks like she failed, even though she brought them up a huge amount. Whereas if the students don't progress at all in this classroom, but they still all continue to score above 70, Well, then now, did this teacher perform better than this teacher? Well, no. But again, this is some of the problems that we have. The only way that you can really, I think, effectively assess performance is if people have a choice. And right now, most parents, most consumers of education, the students and their parents, they don't have a choice. They are issued a school based off of their address. And then a monopolistic government bureaucracy decides what the salaries are in combination between federal, state, and local funding. And so if we want to get to a point where teachers can actually be compensated um, in accordance with their, with their performance, with how hard they work, and things like that, then you're going to need a system where, where parents and students, right, customers actually have a choice. But if, if you're going to require them to go to a school, well, then we're, we're always going to run into these problems as what, what constitutes good, fair compensation based off of the product or the service that is being provided. And so I, I think that's where we we get in a lot of problems. And this goes also into your second question of why are we still using outdated reading programs? Because the government's running it, and and I I wish I wish I could give you a better answer, but this is what happens when you put politicians in charge of determining what this sort of thing looks like in in a market where. Teachers are free to adjust their curriculum in accordance with what works best for their students, and parents and students have some actual choice, well then now teachers don't have to go through this long bureaucratic process, parents don't have to go through this long bureaucratic process in order to make necessary curriculum changes. But as long as the government's running it through a monopolistic system, you're going to have a long, arduous process because now everyone's going to come and lobby for their various things instead of individual teachers, schools, and educational institutions being able to adjust in accordance with what they think meets the needs of their students. So the bottom line is our public education system is not student-driven. It just isn't. It's politically driven. And and I know a lot of people don't like to hear that, but that's the reality. And until we get to a system where students and parents actually have some more choices and this is really important, and teachers have more choices, we're gonna to continue to have this, this battle on you know, some teachers being overpaid, some teachers being, a lot of teachers being underpaid, some teachers being paid just about right. Um, if you look at the overall spending on education in this country from 1970 to now, it's increased exponentially. Um, The student population hasn't increased as much as the teacher population or the administrative staff population. And there's been a huge push to add more administrative staff to schools. And the more admin personnel you have, the less money you have available for teacher salaries. That's just one of several factors that impacts that. And so I'd love to actually, we'll probably do a podcast specifically on education policy and how we can improve on this, because I do think we have a lot of teachers that are leaving the profession right now that are horribly frustrated um, not simply overpay. In fact, a lot of the teachers I talk to their biggest source of frustration is what they believe to be a complete lack of control over their own classroom because they're so worried about complying with government mandates. And I think part of the solution here is not only greater choice for parents and, and students, but it's greater choice for teachers, too, because I think it's, it's, you're going to see better policies go forward. And I think teachers will end up getting compensated um, more effectively and uh, at higher rates if we had that sort of system. So I I hope that answers your question, Melissa. All right, moving on to Laura, the vaccine passports idea. Why are some people pushing this idea? It's creating more division among people. So I think here's what it comes down to, and and I want to be careful about assigning motivations to people, but I will say that here are some of the logical reasons why I think some people could be pushing for vaccine passports obviously you have a lot of people that are very, very concerned. And they're, I think everyone's concerned about COVID to some degree, right? Some people are very, very concerned about it. Some people are not as concerned about it. And a lot of people have had COVID at that, this point. And so they have natural antibodies. Other people have gotten the vaccine in order to prevent against uh, getting COVID. All right. But none of these things are, are foolproof in the sense that there's now no longer any chance at all that you can get covid right what it does is it significantly reduces your overall chances and so there's this combination of of having even to get back to reality and life right we cannot constantly live in a state of lockdown it's just not sustainable but now we have as through a combination of antibodies through a combination of more understanding about how the virus works to vaccines we have the ability to start living our lives that way again. However, some people are still very, very concerned that if there isn't a mechanism to quickly identify whether or not you've had the vaccine, well, then now someone's going to wear, you know, they're walking around without their mask or or whatnot, and they could potentially be spreading the virus. Now, the counter argument to that is, well, then if you're concerned about that, get the vaccine so you don't have to worry about catching the virus from them. And I think that's a legitimate response to that. Um, because I, I don't think we should be living in, in constant fear of this. I, I think that we do have a subsector of the or a subsection of the population with comorbidities, um, the elderly with more compromised immune systems, and they they may continue to take additional precautions. And, and I completely understand that. The question is then, should you impose that on everybody else? And I think setting a precedent for something like a vaccine passport is actually pretty dangerous on a number of levels because. We're already, I think we're really coming out of COVID at this point. And if you're going to require a vaccine passport based off of the arguments that are currently being used, you could essentially require a vaccine passport for a number of other things. And I think we really start to get into some violations of HIPAA. We get into some violations of privacy and and the violations that we experience as a result of those policies are not worth the potential safety that they, they guarantee to us. But when you have convinced a significant portion of the population, um, that this is such a concern that it requires this sort of government involvement and government micromanagement, of course, you're going to have an environment where people want to start, you know, coming up with some sort of pass uh, or vaccine passport requirement. And so again, I don't, I think some people are legitimately scared. I think there's other people that just think that this is an appropriate role of government. Um, and, you know, but again, I don't want to sign individual motivations to people. You'd have to ask an individual on why they think that. But I, I, I imagine those are some of the explanations. I don't think it's a good idea. I think it sets a horrible precedent and I certainly oppose it. Uh, but I'm always willing to have somebody else come on and explain, um, you know, why they think differently. And, you know, we can talk about that. Okay. Uh, Jesse Anton, why is it okay for mainstream media companies to be for profit when they are protected by the Bill of Rights? Most now are not news; just opinionated shows on both sides that spew their perspective. Okay, so the first question: I, I'm gonna. I, I want to be very clear about this. Um, mainstream media companies should be able to be for profit. Just because something is protected by the Bill of Rights doesn't mean you can't engage in a profit-driven, you know, occupation as a result. So I, I, I think it would be a a very bad thing, a very negative precedent to say that if you have, if you are engaging in some sort of activity that is protected by the Bill of Rights, which theoretically could be just about anything, if you want to extrapolate that out, that you have to be a nonprofit, you would destroy the economy. You'd absolutely destroy the economy. So no, I, I look, if you want to be a media company and you want to go out there, of course you should be, the government shouldn't be able to come in and, and shut you down. Now understand what the Bill of Rights is. That is restrictions on government power. That doesn't mean anybody has to watch the media right the freedom of speech doesn't mean that you have a right to an audience it just means the government is not going to come in and restrict your ability to speak and we see this a lot with social media companies too on who can they ban who can they not ban now I think there's problems with certain government protections under things like 230 where all of a sudden the government provides a particular company a, a um, protection because they're saying that they're a platform rather than a publisher right that that's a different that's a different. Area where I think it needs to be addressed. I think a lot of public or I think a lot of um, platform oriented companies like Twitter and Facebook are actually starting to operate like publishing companies. And when you start doing that, you can be sued for things like libel, right? So I, I think they're using inappropriate government protections to engage in behavior that they shouldn't be. Having said that, I do not want a world where the government is constantly coming in and saying, oh, we don't like what you said. Or, or now the government has determined that what you're saying is, you know, you're, you're not giving the news, you're just spewing your opinion, so now we're going to shut you down. that We do not want that. That is fascist, right? That is communist. We don't want that. You know, think about this with the Second Amendment. Would we honestly tell a gun manufacturer, well, since the Second Amendment protects gun rights, then you can't have a for-profit company that builds guns? I hope we wouldn't say that. So no, the the bill of rights is restrictions on government power from infringing on your liberties. If you want to use that liberty to start a business, you should do it and you should not be punished by the government because some people don't like what you do. Now, customers have the same freedom of association to say, I don't like what you're doing or I don't like what you're saying. And so I'm not going to do business with you. Right? They, they're free to do that within the marketplace. The marketplace is the area to, to have those battles. We do not want the government coming in and trying to adjudicate that for us. Because I'm telling you right now, anything you don't like about how a certain business is operating or how a certain uh, media outlet is operating, if you don't like it now, put the government in charge of it and see if you like it better. You won't. I promise you. Again, that doesn't mean that we can't address things like when... You know, Twitter is, says they're a platform and wants the legal protections of a platform, but then operates like a publisher. That's different. All right. But no, this whole idea of profit versus nonprofit, you can engage in profitable activity using all of your liberties available to you, and you should be able to. I hope that answers that question. Okay. Let me see. Um, all right. Kit, uh, Kit has asked me, how do citizens lawfully remove politicians from office? Uh, to just vote them out is, isn't sufficient. I know each state has their own laws. Some can recall a governor like they've been trying in California, but how about people like Pelosi? She may have been elected from one state, but she causes harm to all states. Okay, here's what I'm gonna tell you on this. And, you, and I'm gonna be honest with you, you're probably not gonna like this answer, but it's the truth. You, so your proposition is that because Pelosi is causing harm in other states, there should be a way to you know remove her. There's a million other people that would say that, well. Rand Paul or Mike Lee or Thomas Massey well they they're, they're co- I think they're causing harm to my state so I want to remove them the problem with setting something up like that where now you've got people from one state that could potentially remove somebody from another state is where does it stop where, where does that end the, the thing that I would ask is that look I am sympathetic nothing is more frustrating than watching Congress do something that I feel is hurting you know, my state or my family or my constituents, and they have the legal authority to do it because they 've been duly elected. nothing's more frustrating than that, but if you start setting setting up this mechanism i don't know where that ends there there's a couple different ways to remove people from office, so on the state level, you can have things like recall laws. some states have them, some states don't Virginia doesn 't have a recall law California does. The only other way to generally recall somebody um, or the, to remove someone from office is that if it can be determined in a court of law that they have actually broken the law they have they have, cre- made, they have created some sort of criminal act that rises to the level which can remove them from office and that has been done okay now some people say well wait a second if they pass a law which violates the constitution they've you know they should be kicked out okay i, I get that i'm sympathetic to that the problem is is who ultimately gets to decide that Right? The reason why we have the judicial branch is so if somebody does something unconstitutional, you can take it to the court and you can overturn the law. Does that mean you get rid of the person too? Well, now you have to prove intent. Right? Did that person deliberately mean to undermine the Constitution? And, and if you're going to get into that, well, the, there's a whole host of things where we're going to basically be involved in a never-ending set of trials where everybody is suing everybody else in Congress based off of their impression on whether or not the Constitution was violated. Liberals will sue Republicans because they don't want to cut taxes because cutting taxes means that they can't, you know, faithfully carry out the general welfare clause. Right? Republicans will sue Democrats because they think a particular law violates the, you know, restrictions under the interstate commerce clause. I mean, (laughs) elections are the way to solve this. They just, they really are. Um, Elections are the way to solve it. And it's not perfect, but here's what I would tell you. Nothing is this side of heaven. And the way I want everyone to think about, whenever we come up with a solution to something like this, we're like, well, we want to remove people this way. The thing I want you to think to yourself is how could that potentially be manipulated and used against you? Because it will be. So if someone has broken the law, if they have violated the law, there are mechanisms to remove them. Some states have recall. Um, provisions, which I, I think is perfectly appropriate. recall provisions if the constituents think that hey you totally lied to us about what you do or you're doing a horrible job and we want to kick you out I think that's perfectly legitimate. But other than those two things, um, uh, elections have to carry the day because if they don't, then then again it's going to be a never-ending legal battle where everybody is just suing one another and it becomes a way to just purposefully obstruct everything. Um, I don't want someone to tell, me that I can't, that my representative is going to get kicked out, not because they violated the law, but because somebody in California thought that, you know, they didn't like what they did. So we have to be careful about this. We have to be careful about what we rely upon government to fix or solve. I hope that answers the question. Like I said, I'm sure it's not a very satisfying one, but I think it's the truth based off of just what I've observed about reality. Okay. Uh, Jackie Davis Lawson. Please address the indoctrination of our children in schools with critical race theory. We need to teach American exceptionalism, not work Marxist theories. How do we stop this? Bring back civics and American constitution as required studies. Okay, a couple of things. Um, One, no, I don't think critical race theory should be, you know, um, I don't think it should be mandated uh, in public schools. But can we get to the underlying problem here? The underlying problem here is that we've allowed government to essentially monopolize public education. Public education, you you can have public education without having public administration of education, which is to say that we don't need the government hiring our teachers and we don't need the government managing all of the curriculum. We don't need any of that. That's just what we have. And what's unfortunate is anytime we talk about giving parents more choices or teachers more choices, what we get told is, well, you're against public education. Let 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 me tell you why all this is, I think, highly relevant to your question. I don't want the government in the business of, of, you know, us getting in in fights every year saying, well, I want that taught, but I don't want this taught, but I do want that taught, but not that. Because parents are going to have different opinions on what they want their kids taught. And the real question here is who should get to decide this? Now, if it's the government deciding it, then no, I don't want critical race theory being taught um, or mandated in public schools. Or I certainly don't want it being taught, along with things like the 1619 Project, as if that's factual and accurate history. That might be a take or a perspective on history, but the idea that it is somehow more authoritative uh, than others, I think, is is absurd on its face. Um, So I'm going to give you what I think is the most honest answer here, and it's going to make a lot of people mad. You cannot send your children to Caesar for their education and be surprised when they come home as Romans. The government is the one administrating your child's curriculum. Not you, not your teachers, the government is. So whoever controls the government will ultimately have the say. If you don't like that, the solution is not to elect different people so we can impose a different curriculum on parents and students and teachers. The genuine solution that is rooted in American exceptionalism is allowing for greater individual liberty and choice. And what that means is, is that I will accept that there are parents that will choose to send their children to schools that will educate them on things that I disagree with. But that is their prerogative as their parents. And it should be my prerogative as a parent to be able to get my child the education that I think best sets them up for success. So I I am tired of, the left has already won the argument when the entire argument is about What are politicians going to force kids to learn within public education schools or public schools? The left has already won the argument if that is the battlefield that we're fighting in. The battlefield that we should be fighting for, the idea that we should be fighting for, is not let's put conservatives in control of the curriculum. The battle we should be fighting is, no, we want parents and students to have greater choice. We want teachers to have greater freedom within the classroom. We want an education system that is every bit as diverse as the student body it is attempting to serve. And we don't want education to be nothing more than a political football thrown around by politicians, unions, special interest groups, and ignoring our children. So if, we, if we're really serious about addressing this problem, that's how you do it. it it's not simply by trading one set of you know, political dictators of curriculum with a different set of political dictators of curriculum. It's about providing a more free and open educational system where the best ideas can genuinely rise to the top. And if we and, and the reason why I have no fear over that system is because I genuinely believe that liberty is the answer to the question on education and that within a free environment the best ideas will rise. Right? Unfortunately too many people want to monopolize a government monopolized system. And it fails students. It fails teachers. And it causes division within our communities as we're all fighting over these these questions, which should not be answered by government. I hope that answers your question, Jackie. All right. Tenth question here, Aaron Patterson. I am tired of all the racism accusations. How can we get past the divide on race relations? That is a great question, Aaron. And I, I'm going to say again, I'm going to try to be as I'm going to try to be as, as fair and open-minded on this as I can possibly be. I think there are, so there are some people that are genuine racists, right? They believe, and by racism, I believe they believe in the inferiority or superiority of an individual or group of individuals based off of their race. That is a racist. I don't care what color you are, that's a racist. I don't care what your circumstances are, that's a racist. If you naturally believe in the inferiority or superiority of another person or a group of individuals based off the race, you are a racist. And I do think there are people that fall within this column. The best way we combat that, don't be one of those people. Don't, don't judge someone based off of their race. Right? That's easy answer to that one. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people that are making a lot of money, and I think, I think some of them might just be hucksters. Others, I think, genuinely believe it, that have bought into the notion of critical race theory. And again, as I've discussed before, the whole component of, of critical theory it doesn't just apply to race. Critical theory is is generally around this idea of oppressors and oppressed. So you have have oppressors and you have people that are oppressed. In in a Marxist narrative, that's usually focused around um, economics, right? Classes, bourgeois versus the proletariat. In critical race theory, it's based off of a combination of you know, race. You, you, critical theory is also applied toward uh, sex as well. You get intersectionality in there, which is to say that different groups might be um, discriminated against more based off of the, the number of uh, classes they belong to that are potentially a victim of discrimination or racism or sexism, etc., And some people honestly view the world through that lens. It's the idea that no, by the very nature of your skin color and the very nature of past policies, um, certain infrastructure, certain things have been put in place, which is unavoidable. And therefore, the only way for the oppressed to rise up is if you do have um, discrimination in the opposite direction in order to arise to an equal level. Um, the problem is, is that that never seems to achieve the results that they're promising us. And I, I think one of the big things that we can do for, for those of us, and I'm going to give you a, a real quick story on this. Um, I was at church and we were all talking about various things and, and the whole issue of uh, Colin Kaepernick kneeling for the American flag came up. And most of us didn't like that. And there was there was one black woman in our congregation that said, no, I agree with what he's doing. And everyone would, they were all shocked. They said, well, how can you, how can you think that that flag is a symbol of, of our country? And everyone kept talking over and I, and I finally looked at her and I said, look, everyone just be quiet for a second. Let her explain what she means. And what it was is this woman had grown up in an environment where she had been the victim of racism. She had lived under Jim Crow. Her parents had lived under Jim Crow. And it's not that she thought all white people were racist, but every experience of racism that she had was delivered to her by a white person. And so in that situation, that doesn't make her a racist. That just means that based off of her experience, she's more cautious about certain actions and terminology. And she viewed what Colin Kaepernick is doing as bringing attention to that. Now, I don't think Colin Kaepernick, I I have a real problem with what Colin Kaepernick did and how he did it. I think that there's there's a number of ways that he could have done it that would have actually done a better job of, of, you know, articulating some of these concerns. And I know that because this woman did a great job of it. She explained to me, this was my experience, this is my perspective, and this is why I feel the way I do. And we were able to come back and and engage and talk with one another because she didn't feel like she was being attacked for what she believed. I didn't feel like I was being attacked. And because right off the bat, we established where we wanted to be. And where we wanted to be was that her and I saw each other as, as, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ first, right? That, That we had, you know, equal value and validity before God as a result of that. And what we wanted was the harmony that, that should be expected of us because of those reasons. And through that, we were able to have a really good conversation. And, and again, it doesn't necessarily mean we agreed on everything, but I, I certainly understood a lot more about her perspective and she understood a lot more about my perspective as well. And, and so in that situation, you can have conversation, you can even have disagreement, um, but you don't need to have, like what you said, the, the division you don't need to have the animosity. And so what, what, I would, what I would argue is like, look, I think we should fight back against critical race theory. I think we should fight back about some of these things that I think fall into the, the realm of indoctrination. Um, but we should always make sure that when we are talking to somebody, especially if it's somebody that has actually experienced racism firsthand, legitimately experienced racism firsthand, don't throw out their experience Because we no longer think that's the norm across the board. I mean, obviously, the country has changed a lot from 1964 to today. And and I know it's very frustrating for a lot of us that feel like none of that is acknowledged or that when it is acknowledged, it's simply in passing and in order to carry on and talk about how, well, you're all institutionally or systematically racist. I know that's frustrating. And, And on the larger discussions that are taking place, the macro discussions that are taking place, it's very difficult to find common ground because common ground is not what people are looking for because there's a lot of money and power to be had and keep maintaining the division. But in our individual relationships, in our schools, in our churches, in our businesses, judging people by the content of their character, listening to people share their perspective, politely and respectfully sharing yours, that is how you actually get past racial division. That is how you create an environment where both sides, no matter where they stand on an individual issue, cannot stand the people that are deliberately engaging in division. And I think that's the best way to do it. I hope that answers your question. Okay, um, we're going to do one more. And then, like I said, I, I will pick up. I got, a, I got like another 20 questions on here, but I, I don't want this to go for two hours. So I'm going to do one more right now. And then we're going to pick up with some more of these questions uh, on a later episode. Uh, I really like this. Jesse uh, Anton asks, where does your concept of the free market extend, within or outside our country? If outside, is it free market when other countries don't have to worry about labor costs, government regulations, et cetera? Is taxing citizens better than tariffs? If tariffs paid for the majority of our government spending before the implementation of income taxes, why wouldn't you want more fair trade instead of free trade? Great questions. Okay, so what is the free market? The free market is essentially that you have the, you have property rights and you have the right to engage in voluntary exchange. That is what a free market is. Um, Now, every single marketplace in the world has some sort of regulations, restrictions, or government intervention. And I don't mean restrictions like you can't engage in fraud or you can't steal. That's not an infringement on the free market. Those are, those are actually uh, helpful components to a free market. Because again, it stops becoming a free transaction or a voluntary transaction with somebody else's inserting rules, regulations, restrictions, taxes, et cetera, right? So really this question is about a freer economy versus less free economies, right? Because no economy in the world is 100% free market. No, with the possible exception of North Korea is the closest to a completely controlled marketplace. Hong Kong is probably the freest marketplace that we have. Um, So I'm a huge advocate of free markets because I believe in peaceful, voluntary transactions. And even if you make a transaction that I don't necessarily agree with, that's really none of my business as long as you're not infringing on my liberties or my freedoms, right? You're free to make bad decisions if you want to. I pray that you learn from them and make better decisions just as I pray that I learn and make better decisions from my mistakes. But the whole idea of outside the country or in the country. So this is what comes with a lot of free trade versus fair trade. This is a very long you know, discussion. This could be its whole podcast. In fact, it probably will be at some point. Um, I would really encourage you to read Milton Friedman's remarks on the concept of free trade versus fair trade. It is it is difficult to quantify fair trade. If by fair trade what you mean is that I'm free to buy products from your country and you're free to buy products from my country. That's essentially free trade. Now some people don't like that because they'll say, well it's not fair because you know, in some countries, the labor costs are really, really low. And so American labor costs can't compete with that. What I would tell you there is that that is never true across the entire board. It's usually true in certain industries. So for instance, textiles, right, clothing and things like that, that generally doesn't require a great deal of high skilled labor until you're getting into really, really complex, you know, designs or couture fashion or things like that. And so basically, it makes more sense for a country with lower labor costs to produce those things and for a a more advanced economy to focus its attention in those areas where it's more competitive on a world stage, right? So there is natural fluctuations and natural uh, advantages that certain economies have over other economies based off of a whole litany of criteria. Um, And Thomas Sowell actually writes uh, writes a lot about this, right? There are certain countries that are more conducive for growing certain crops than other countries does that mean that like, so for instance, we have a bunch of sugar tariffs because it's cheaper to grow sugar in other places, but we have a bunch of tariffs that artificially increase the the cost of sugar so that we can keep the sugar industry alive in Florida. Well, is that appropriate? No, I don't think it is. I don't think you should be forced to pay taxes to subsidize an industry, right? I just don't. I don't think that's, I don't think that's morally justified and I don't think it's economically sound. Now the other argument that you'll get as well: some governments subsidize an industry within their own country so that they can compete with foreign competitors. So, for instance, let's say uh, Japan uses tax dollars to subsidize their car industry in order to bring down the cost of their cars for export markets. So now it's it's cheaper to sell a car in the United States than it otherwise would have been if the Japanese government wasn't putting money into Japanese car companies. Okay, you can make that argument, but let me tell you what they've just done. What essentially they've done is they've taxed the Japanese people in order to sell cheaper cars to the United States. Now, you could argue that, well, doesn't that put our uh, car companies at an economic disadvantage? Well, there's a couple different ways you can combat that. But the worst way that you can combat it is just by making all cars more expensive for Americans. right? That That doesn't make us wealthier as a nation. If another country wants to tax its citizens If another country wants to actually reduce the economic capacity of their own citizens in order to give Americans cheaper products, I say we take them. Because you can't do that forever. It's not economically sound. And they will try to do this in order to run other companies out of business. And what we see over time is that on on a superficial level that seems to make sense, but it's actually really, really difficult to do. It's really difficult to do. Now. There is one area where I I can see um, the establishment of certain trade barriers, or or actually there's three areas. If you're at war with another country, then I understand trade embargoes. If you have a country that is engaging in things like slave labor and you want to do some sort of restrictions in order to prevent that, I can understand that on a moral level. I can understand that. Um, the third component, now again, I want I to stress something. There's a difference between you know, slave labor and labor in an economy that is just not as advanced as the United States. There was a lot of people that wanted to raise, um, like for instance, there was, there was a huge movement for a while to shut down sweatshops in places like Bangladesh because you had kids working long hours making clothes in Bangladesh that were sold to the West and people said, well, this is horrible. Okay, I I understand that, and I understand that that is is not what we want to see happening. The problem is this. Because of this stage of their economic development, when they started shutting down those sweatshops, it's not as if those kids all went to school and made macaroni art. They got sold into prostitution and the sex trade. Some of those families, if the children didn't work, the family starved to death. Okay, so... (laughs) The problem is, is that when someone gives somebody a, an economic choice that they can voluntarily choose or not choose, and they choose it, don't take it away from them, right? That that doesn't achieve the results that you want. And the thing that we need to remember is there was a time in the United States, it, people think that because we passed labor laws, that ended things. No, economic development increases the overall standard of, liber, or standard of, of living of everybody. You can't just pass the law and make stuff go away. I guarantee you if we're in the United States and families would starve to death if their 12-year-old wasn't out there working the crops, the 12-year-old would be working the crops. I don't care what labor laws you had in place. You have to allow for economic development over time that allows people to raise up to the point where it's no longer conducive to have that. It, 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 it's, it, it's not just you know, a moral question. It's a hard reality economic question. So, I just wanted to make that distinction between slave labor and and an economy that's still developing. The third reason for um, limited use of tariffs is that if you have a situation where you are trying to get to a more free trade environment. So for instance, if we are openly allowing another country to buy and sell products in the United States, but they are heavily restricting um, the, the production or sale of US products in their country then I, I can see an argument to be made, a limited argument to be made to say, hey, if you don't stop doing that, then we're going we're gonna to turn up the juice against you until we can get it to a free trade environment. It, again, but that is a dangerous, dangerous game to be played. Um, there, there are two people that I will encourage you to read on this because, again, I, I, understand, I understand the impulse and the desire uh, to not put American companies at a competitive disadvantage because of what other governments are doing. But there are two things that I would beg you to read on this. One is Milton Friedman. Um, the other is Frederick Bastiat. I, I want you to read Frederick Bastiat's um, The Sophistry of the Protectionists. It was a, a pamphlet he did, and he was explaining the whole concept of trade and how trade benefits people and how trade is actually essential to a thriving economy. If you think you can just shut down your you know, trade, and get, it, it doesn't work. Never has, never will. It might work for some companies for a limited period of time. It might work for certain industries for a limited period of time. It is not a long-term solution, either morally or economically. So I would just encourage you to, to, to look into that. But ultimately, I want to get as free a market as I possibly can, and I want to get as free a trade as I possibly can. But yes, I do want it to be both ways. I don't think it's fair the way that the United States is treated in some parts of the world with respect to our trade deals. And some of that is because we've negotiated some very bad trade deals. So I hope that answers your question. All right. Gosh, dang. What did we get to? We got to like, we got to three or 11 questions today. Um, Oh, gosh, there's another one. There's one. Okay, Jude, stand by because you got your one on why are we bad at selling the idea of freedom. And I really want to answer that one. And I am going to answer that one. Just not this episode. So thank you for joining us on this. I hope you enjoyed this. Um, we're going to gonna post it on. You'll, you'll see this coming up and probably, gosh, Monday afternoon. Um, let us know what you think. Let us know what you think. Give us feedback. Um, we're going to do another episode. If you like this type of ed- episode, let us know. Let us know. Once again, thank you very much for joining us on Making the Argument. I hope these answers to your questions were helpful. We will see you next time where we'll answer some more questions. God bless. Godspeed. And we'll see you next episode.